All right, let's move on to chapter 17, verse 4. We have the woman clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Now, this is a uh, spiritualizer's dream here. We've got just a list of items that they can assign various different meanings. And uh, it occupies a lot of time digging through the Old Testament and the New Testament to try to find what do these things symbolize. I don't think they symbolize anything necessarily outside of the context of Revelation 17 through 18, because we are told what they are, I believe. Here in chapter 18, it says, The merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore cargo of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargo of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. This is the industry of the economic side of Babylon. These adornments of the woman are referred to as those items which she possesses and sells. I think these are actually speaking of literal things which this great city is known for. Clothes, purple, scarlet, gold, precious stones, pearls. They're defined for us here. Their, their importance in this passage is given to us in chapter 18, verse 14. It says, the fruit you long for has gone from you and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. The importance of listing these items that she is adorned with is to show that she is adorned with luxury and splendor. It says the merchants of these things who become rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, woe, woe, the great city. She who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great wealth has been laid waste. So we have wealth added to the, the reasons behind listing these items. She is luxurious, splendid, and wealthy. This one is separated a little bit. She has a golden cup full of abominations and unclean things. We look back to verse 6 of chapter 17. It says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. So she is drinking herself into a tizzy with blood here. Back in chapter 16, verses 5 through 6, if you remember, we had this odd little interlude. Um, right after all of the water and all the sources of water on earth had been turned to literal blood. We get the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, literally here, you have given them blood to drink, literally. They deserve it. So she has literally spilled the blood of saints and prophets. In Revelation 18, we'll just read six here. Um, after the destruction of the city, it says, pay her back even as she has paid and give back to her double according to her deeds 
in the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. So that is the only reason why I take this gold cup as symbolic, and it's symbolic here of her murderous wrath against God's people. Again, we are listed these abominations and unclean things and immoralities. It's her idolatrous worship or the idolatrous worship which she permeates throughout the peoples of the world, which has caused these murders of God's people, of those who place their faith, place their trust for their salvation in Jesus Christ. And then in Revelation 17, 5, we are given yet another interpreter's stumbling block. It says, on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, people love when you throw in the word mystery, because that means I can make this mean whatever I want it to mean. But a mystery does not mean that. A mystery, mysterion, is not the same thing as is used back here in Revelation 11, 8, which also doesn't give us permission to make it whatever we want. We have to follow the context. That great city, which mystically, a different Greek word, is called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. We are led by the context and by the language, not just the mystically uh, participle here, to identify this as something other than literal Sodom and literal Egypt. That's not the case in Revelation 17.5. As well, in Revelation 17.7, we see that this mystery... Uh, actually, this is speaking of a similar, related, but different mystery. A mystery here is immediately defined for us, just as it was, uh, right, we'll get there. Um, the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads of the ten horns. So here, John's not talking specifically about this mystery, which is Babylon the Great, He's talking about the whole picture, which he just saw. He's going to explain that mystery for him immediately. This is very much in line with how the New Testament and even the Old Testament uses these mysteries. Mysteries in biblical language are not things that we're left wondering about. A mystery is something that is explained to us. Because it's a mystery, because it's brought up, it's explained. There are at least eight of these in the New Testament. Some like to combine some of these, so you get that uh, very spiritual number seven. Um, I do really like trying to use the number seven, but I, I didn't find it worth um, conflating any of the two of these. We've got the mystery of godliness in First Testament in First Timothy three sixteen, which was the incarnation of Christ. That does not remain a mystery at the time of Timothy. In fact, that was. Uh, a revealed mystery, but it was a mystery in the Old Testament. They did not know that God himself would come in human flesh, and that was a stumbling block for them. But it is no longer a mystery at this point in 1 Timothy when it is called a mystery. The mystery of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.7, which is uh, the mystery that the Antichrist spirit would be in the earth, even in those days, in the days of um, first century, but that it would be restrained by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church. That was the mystery of lawlessness. That was no longer something that was mysterious. It was 
known, it was described, it was defined at that point and when it was called a mystery. There is the mystery of Christ in you in dwelling in Colossians 1, 26 and 27. It was revealed here that the Holy Spirit was indwelling the believer. So that means they are not left in mystery. They are not left in wondering. It is a mystery because it is defined. The mystery of Christ. This is the mystery of the gospel of Christ. Ephesians 6.19, Colossians 2.2 and 4.3 and many other places. This is the most repeated mystery in the New Testament. And it's the mystery of the gospel. The gospel is not something we don't know. It's not something we don't understand. Here it is called a mystery because at one time it was not known, but now it is known. The mystery of the church. The church was a mystery in the Old Testament and through much of the gospels, but it was no longer a mystery here when Paul defines it in Ephesians 1, 9, 3, 3, 3, 4, and 3, 9. The mystery of the rapture, 1 Corinthians 15, 51. It's described that not all will be resurrected, but some will be translated. Some will never undergo resurrection, but they will undergo translation. That was a mystery, but it's not a mystery anymore when Paul calls it. It's not a mystery anymore in the sense that we use mystery, but in the sense that the New Testament uses it, which is something at the time being revealed. The mystery of Israel's unbelief. It was not known in the Old Testament that there would be a period which Israel would sit in unbelief uh, between two offers of the kingdom. And the mystery of the kingdom's postponement. It was not seen from the Old Testament that the kingdom would be offered, rejected, postponed, and reoffered at a later time. Those were mysteries because they were not revealed until they were declared. And so a mystery is something in the process of being revealed or having recently been revealed. All right, we see that in Revelation 1.20 as well, which, if you remember, sets the tone for the book of Revelation, which is... The apocalypsis, the unveiling, not the veiling, says, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Mysteries are not left undefined in the Bible. If it's called a mystery, then that means it was something unknown, which is now known. This one wasn't unknown for very long, even. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 13 shows us the lampstands. And in verse 16, it shows us the seven stars. They're not told to us that they are symbolic until we get to uh, verse 20, in which case they are called a mystery and then they are defined. This is the pattern that we see all throughout scripture. We're not left hanging to interpret a mystery. It's interpreted for us. The mystery of Babylon the Great uh, does not tell us we need to go make something up to fill in what Babylon the Great means. It means it's about to be defined. The mystery of Babylon the Great is that she is the mother of all harlots and the abominations of the earth. This mystery is that her or she has been the permeating uh, instigator of all idolatrousness over all the earth. So the mystery is, she is the mother of all harlots. Now, there's really only one way for this to happen, is if she was around when all nations were one. In Genesis 10, 
verses eight through nine, we are fresh off the boat. In fact, we're within 300 to 500 years after the flood and everyone's still hanging around the Middle East. We get the son of Cush, whose name is Nimrod. He becomes a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Nimrod is our first great uh, type of the Antichrist to come. In chapter 10, verse 10 of Genesis, it says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, which becomes Babylon or Babylonia. He also built Erech, which is modern day Uruk in Samaria. And he built Akkad, which is Akkadia. He built Kalna in the land of Shinar, which is summer. Uh, those are older, but we know where they are. They don't exist today, just like Persia doesn't, but we know it's Iran. Um, Iran or Iraq? It's Iran, yeah. Uh, from that land, he went forth into Assyria, and he built Nineveh. We know Nineveh. Uh, it was the capital of Assyria. He built Rehoboth-ur, and he built Kala, and resin between Nineveh and Kala, and that, uh, that is the great city. So he builds all these different uh, nations, which become daughter nations. But really, his pride and joy, his glory is Babel. It is the center of his world government. And from that point, all the tongues of the earth are scattered. They are confused, or the tongues, I guess, of the earth are created, which is the confusing of the languages says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built, that is in Babel. The Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole earth, and there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So the mystery that this mother, or that uh, Babylon the Great is the mother of all harlotries, all abominations of the earth, is really only possible for one city. And that was the one city in which all of the earth could be born from. After that, they're scattered and nations are still being born from all other nations, but you don't have one common root after Babylon. And we are not surprised then to find that the Babylonian influence is everywhere around the earth. In fact, this, the uh, wife of Nimrod was a woman named Semiramis, and the son of Nimrod and Semiramis was a man named Tammuz. And from this, we get a global influence of the mother-child cult. They go by various names. In Israel, they were known as Baal, Tammuz, and Ashtoreth. In fact, the end of this month, Yes, June 29th or June 30th begins the month of Tammuz on the Hebrew calendar. So even one of the 12 or the, yeah, even one of the 
the months of the Israeli calendar is named after this Tammuz. Phoenicians, El, Bacchus, and Ashtarte, Babylon, Belus, Tammuz, and Ishtar. Uh, you can see Greece, we know, that's Zeus, Dionysus, and Aphrodite. Uh, Rome, Jupiter, Addis, and Diana. Here's one in Assyria. You've got Ninus, Hercules, and Beltus. We even got influence in India, Vishnu, Krishna, and uh, Isi or Devaki. China, Mexico, they all have this mother-child cult. In fact, we have a, a, I think I gave a couple of you a book called Queen of All. And that has to do with this mother-child cult. Now, people will um, see, for example, you see this one in the bottom middle. This is um, the mother-child cult as represented in Colombia from the Catholic influence. The Catholics, or Rome, was not the progenitor of this cult. It came from Babel. And so Rome is not the mother of all harlots but she is the daughter of the mother of all harlots. And that's why there is a similarity there. In fact, the, uh, the, uh, the, what's it called? The Immaculate Madonna is not actually Mary, although they would call her that. The myth behind Mary and the Christ child in the Catholic tradition is, uh, is a syncretism with the cults that they encountered around the world when they would go in and syncretize with native religions. It is not the biblical understanding of Mary um, and Jesus. It has been uh, corrupted by this mother-child cult. And so Rome, just like all of the other nations of the world, will be part of this final global government, but it will not be the seat of that global government. It will be literal Babylon. We have no reason to take it as otherwise. Some will say that John was writing um, carefully so as not to offend Rome because he was uh, already exiled by them. I'd say at this point, he has nothing to lose. He doesn't need a code name for Rome. People will say that when Paul was writing about Rome, he used Babylon, but there's actually no evidence that he ever was in Rome. There's just as much, if not better, evidence that he was literally in Babylon. Um, he was probably not writing carefully or secretively about Rome. In fact, that would go very much against the character of, uh, did I say Paul? I meant Peter. That would go very much against the character of Peter, who really doesn't pull any punches. He, uh, he says what he means in just about every case, and he doesn't really care who he offends. Um, he's not trying to be secretive and, and uh, not get in trouble by naming Rome. This was an interpretation of the early church fathers, but the early church fathers did not have a, uh, a corner on interpretation. Just because they interpreted it doesn't mean that it is an inspired interpretation. Only a biblical interpretation is inspired, and we want to pay attention to the history. Um, but we don't just accept um, those interpretations because it was an early interpretation. There were also early interpretations which label it as Babel or Babylon. Babylon fits better. It is the only nation which could have been a progenitor of all 
nation's future. The mystery here is that she comes back, that Babylon, which was and is not and will be again, um, it is a mystery now revealed that she will be the final global uh, world power. Now, one more thing about Tammuz and Ishtar, the myth that goes along with them that has crept into all these cultures um, is, of course, been corrupted through the ages, but it is still called this mother-child cult. It's found in all religions around the world. Uh, Tammuz, the son of Nimrod, was said to have been mauled by an animal, died, and then resurrected. And that was in his, uh, in his day, that cult that formed around Ishtar and Tammuz was said to be a fulfillment of the seed promise that Noah had brought with him on the boat. And when they got off, they knew that there was coming um, a son of the woman who would uh, rule the world, essentially. And so they said that would be Tammuz. We see that even in Ezekiel 8, at the time of the Babylonian deportation, this cult is alive and well in Israel. It says, then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house. That's an angel bringing Ezekiel out to see um, the judgment on Jerusalem. The Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And he said to me, do you see this, son of man? yet you will see still greater abominations than these. Now, this has really been Satan's plan from the beginning. He counterfeits God's plans, not just because that's a structure he knows could work, but because he is trying to fool the world into following him. We have Satan's counterfeit trinity, where we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have the unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the land, the God figure, the Messiah figure, and the, uh, the inspiring figure, I guess you could say. I don't have a better word for that. <clears throat> we have Satan's counterfeit Christ, his counterfeit Messiah, who will come and offer a covenant with Israel, and he's going to offer a faux peace to the world. This is what they are looking for from a Messiah. In fact, you get um, language from the EU with very similar undertones of uh, any man who comes offering peace will accept him, be he God or devil. We have Satan's counterfeit bride, the, um, the harlot in this case in 17. And we have the bride of Christ. Uh, so we have this counterfeit people. And we have this counterfeit city, these two opposed cities, Babylon, the great harlot, and the holy city of Jerusalem. And we are going to see those contrasted over the next five or six chapters in Revelation. That's kind of the theme of the final chapters of Revelation. And so here we end with Revelation 17, 6. It says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. 
And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. So she is back from apparently the dead. Jeremiah 51, six through seven says, flee from the midst of Babylon and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He is going to render recompense to her. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore the nations are going mad. This prophecy all the way back from before the time of the Babylonian captivity, and it looks all the way forward here to Revelation 18. It has not yet been fulfilled. It will be fulfilled in the last days. Says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Excuse me. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid and give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed. Mix twice as much for her. So next week, we are actually going to look at the judgment on Babylon and the beast by uh, Jesus Christ. We essentially tonight just went through and um, assigned what we see are symbols and what we see are not symbols. And we saw that the majority of the images are not symbolic, um, but there are a few symbols and they are all defined for us, at least to some extent. We have the woman who is uh, Babylon, and she is representative of a city. And we have the scarlet beast, which is representative of the Antichrist's revived kingdom in the second part of the tribulation period. We're going to see both overthrown. And you might ask, didn't we already see them overthrown in chapter 16? Yes, we did, but we are getting filled in a little more information about that kingdom before it was overthrown, so that in this vision, John can juxtapose the harlot um, city of Babylon, which was the progenitor of all abominations throughout all of um, this chunk of history from Noah's flood on forward. He can juxtapose that with the holy city of Jerusalem, which is our future destiny and hope. As I have liked to do in the last six months or so, I'm going to plug this class that we've got here at, at my church. It is the Life of Messiah going from March 15th to September 13th, 27 different units. Actually, we're doing it in 26. I missed a week because I had COVID. So we're crunching 14 and 15 together, but we're only on week 11. So if you uh, want to watch online or if you want to actually come and join us, um, the group's growing. We started with about three or four, and we're up to over 10 now. So uh, we'd love to have you come and join us for fellowship or watch online. This is going through a thematic uh, view of Christ's life, why certain events happened in the order that they happened, what led to uh, the rejection of him as the Messiah of Israel, which led to the postponement of the kingdom, which opened up this uh, this period of grace in God's prophetic calendar, which we call the church. So uh, this is a Jewish look at the life of Christ in his context and day. So uh, yes, you're, you're welcome to join us or watch that online. It's a 
it's a good study. That's it. <clears throat> Thank you.